Welcome to the No Nonsense Edge Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I am Michael Kustas. Hi, Miguel. Thanks for coming on. So we wanted to talk about SAFE with you. We previously raised concerns about SAFE and you have taken the opposing view on LinkedIn and other places. I think you're being a devil's advocate for SAFE because you like to put forward the argument for different points of view. We've spoken twice before this, and I think you are a good, experienced, agile coach, and I think you have lots of interesting things to say. So we want to see what the defense for SAFE is, and I don't think Dean Leffingwell had come on and talked to us about this. So I appreciate you doing that. Before we get into that, can you please tell us a bit about yourself and what your experience is? I'm basically a computer nerd, which also brought me into the field of computers. Started my career in the software testing industry, moved to quality management, Lean Six Sigma, and when Scrum started to become a thing, I moved to Azure Consulting. I used to have some serious concerns with the Agile Manifesto when I was still in the role of a process manager. You can guess when they come with the first sentence, people and interactions over processes and tools, and you tell that to a process manager, being prepared to encounter some resistance. So I did for a couple of years, but I joined the Agile space a bit more than a decade ago, and I got SAFE certified in 2016 with Dean Laughingwell. It was a really interesting course and some pretty heated discussions. I was more with the less community, so I was not so fond of safe. So I gave some pretty good fire to Dean. But when I came out, I said, okay, I can understand in which context we can make some use of this. And pretty soon I went into the space of helping mostly larger organizations get value from the safe framework. And that's where I am today. So are you a safe consultant with a large corporation at the moment? Yes. Even though I would say that safe is not even so important to what I do. It gives a frame to the things that I do. You know, how corporations are, they always say we want to launch an agile release train. And I always start with the question, why do you want to launch an agile release train? What's your problem? Which problem are you actually trying to solve? There are valid reasons and some benefits that you can get from an agile release train, but we have a lot of issues in uh, larger corporations. For example, we don't even have the technical practices in place. The ways of working don't accommodate agility at all. We have teams who have never even heard of agile before. We are constantly struggling with overburdening organizational complexity. And so those are some challenges that we face. And if we have a way of addressing them, that safe can be useful. But if we don't address those underlying challenges, then safe is just a new label on the same old bad practices and uh, high effort, low outcome ways of working. And that's not what you hire me for. So a bit of context for our audience. I am also a SAFE certified consultant and I have practiced as a agile coach in the SAFE team and I have run a program increment 
I also was around when SAFE was being invented. So I saw the first implementation of program increments at Telstra, which inspired Dean Livingwell to make that the core of his program. And I remember going to an Agile conference at Telstra where Dean Leffingwell presented the map of SAFE. Didn't know what to call it at that stage, but then said to everybody there, I need to find some ways to make money out of this. Has anybody got any ideas? Please come and talk to me. That was my first experience. So that brings us to a very important point. There is one thing that we should never keep out of sight. If one thing that you can really say where SAFE is successful, it is marketing and sales. That's absolutely one thing that SAFE has perfection that is much better than anyone else in the Agile space has ever done before. And it also does lead to a much further spread of Agile practices in the industry worldwide. They know how to reach the corporations. Yeah, I'll agree with you that if gaining pretty certificates is your goal, SAFE is one of the better organizations to buy your certificate off. Going through the multiple SAFE certifications is a great way of getting more certificates. But actually, I'll take your point that there is some value in SAFE and that large organizations seem more open to adopting it as a way of starting their agile journey than a lot of the other approaches. Because for the safe people, give them a map that looks like their organization with different coloring and different titles for the same pair of slips. So everybody can look at the safe map and go, oh, that's where I fit. And therefore they feel comfortable. I agree that it's had some success because large organizations are adopting it to try to do change. But I also think it doesn't invoke the change that's required to understand the hard problems that need to be solved and then address those underlying problems. That's the goal of what we do when we're helping customers change the way they work. Yeah, so I also want to jump in with a compliment for SAFE. SAFE has disrupted the scrum trainer market it has been very difficult to become a scrum trainer scrum alliance had a real closed shop and if you wanted to get in there and run training and certifications it was very hard to do but when safe came along they exploded the whole market and it was now possible to get in there as a safe trainer and make a lot of money because that safe adoption path has 15 courses on it that you're supposed to do I know a safe trainer in my area who makes an extra three or four hundred thousand dollars a year from running safe training for 30 or 40 people at a go because all the big corporations are adopting it so there's thousands of people wanting to do it so lots of money to be made it's a shame that you're not doing it Michael I'm I'm feeling like it's a good <laughs> opportunity for you I am really thinking about doing exactly the kind of safe training that would also talk about the problems that we're actually trying to solve and not just, okay, this is how you do it. Just look at my LinkedIn title. I choose a title thought provoker because for me, when people start to think about why are we doing this and what is the thing that we actually want to achieve and how could we do different things that could help us get to where we want to go, then they have everything they need in order to be successful. And that is already one thing that enter agile certification market. It's really about giving you the shiny certificate that proves that you attended a course for which you shelled out a few hundreds or maybe even a thousand or more dollars 
but it doesn't make any difference. So what people really need is to understand what are the challenges we are facing and how could we actually address them. So I'm going to do another compliment to say, I'm not defending it, but I'm trying to call out the small bits of value I see in it. So one of the organizations I worked with, one of the stakeholders said that they actually found some value in state that they could go to one place and see a map of words that they could then drill down on. And so it gave them a menu of things to explore. And your point there about creating a course where we understand the underlying problems, and then we understand the patterns or the options we have from the agile community that may or may not solve those problems, given your context. I think that's valuable. So I think the idea that SAFE has put together a bunch of agile patterns from the agile community and put those into a way of working, I think that has value. The problem I have is that then that's the only way to do it. DPI planning, 90 day increments. And to me, that's just bollocks. So if SAFE said, here's a bunch of patterns, build your own map out over time with context, with experimentation, with things that work, then I'd be like, hell yeah, that's a bloody great approach. But it doesn't, right? It comes out and says, here's the gospel according to SAFE. And that's the problem I have with it. Well, first thing I would agree with you on the menu part, and it was also something that I did argue with Dean Laughingwell. And Dean very clearly said that there is no need to do SAFE. There are other scaling approaches that you can use. It's just a question of what value are you trying to get out of it? And I would also come back to the collection of patterns. Now, when you look at the safe big picture and especially at the safe website, it's not just everything, but the kitchen sink, it's everything and the kitchen sink. And it requires a lot of experience and understanding in the agile space to discern which of those patterns would be applicable in a specific context and which aren't, but. For consultants, it's really great money to say you need all of it. And for each consultant who is willing to sell you all of it, there's probably three executives who say we want all of it. Yeah. So first of all, you talked about teaching safe as a set of patterns and understanding the basic problem and then applying a context to it, but you can't do that in safe. SAFE provides a completely standardized set of training that you have to follow. That training is going to take up all your time. So you won't have time to do any of that stuff you talk about. And secondly, SAFE is incredibly detailed in its processes. So for example, in the week prior to your program increment planning, in the first hour of the Monday, there's an agenda for what you do in that meeting and what you should expect to come out of it. And then there's an agenda for the second hour and the third hour. It's an incredibly detailed process about what you should do, which is great for people who love processes. Organizations that love processes and want to centralize their processes and want everybody to follow a, a process in detail really appreciate that, but I don't, I don't think that's agile because agile is individuals and interactions over processes and tools, not processes and tools and individuals and interactions can go and get stuffed. I wonder how many people actually follow the methodology. I wonder how many people actually do that first hour, the way the manual says to. I've seen people do it. The first thing I can say in this context, if you ever want to become an SPC trainer, you need to provide evidence 
that you followed the textbook in a safe adoption so that you did do everything that you said, follow the detailed plan and run the meetings exactly as described and then reflect on the outcomes you get. I can say I tried it one time, didn't work for very long because the first thing that happened is that people rebelled against us because they said, you don't give us sufficient time to think. We are forced to make a decision without even having sufficient time to discuss the consequence of our actions. So we abandoned that plan pretty fast. But what I did is I created my own project plan. It sounds funny, but it gives organizations a good understanding of what they're up to. So. Yeah, everybody has this problem of the program increment two days with a hundred people doesn't give you enough time to think about it. And so everybody spends the two months prior to the PI plan with the program leadership team working out what is going to be discussed in detail. So they spend two months defining the features and the feature roadmap and writing requirements and basically doing the work that's supposed to be done in the PI increment with the team and then they bring it to the team and then they go through the process and say, okay, this is what we want you to do, make a few modifications and then agree to it. So what you get is this situation all the time where there's a five month lead time for a feature, two months of planning, then somewhere in your three month program increment, it's going to come out. So maybe it'll come out in the first month. So if you're lucky, it'll only be three months until you get it, but frequently three to five months before you get something, which seems really slow compared to agile because agile, if we wanted to talk about what agile is, it's agility, ability to respond to change and safe, I think has a fairly poor ability to respond to change and adapt to the environment. No, my experience is the content of the PI is the least of our concerns. Our major concerns are really about how is the organization set up. I was recently working with an organization in 2022. Developers were still sending emails with their updated code to one another. And if you want to work in an agile fashion, you want to release 10 times a day, continuous delivery, continuous deployment. You need to do some groundwork. You need to set up the continuous integration. You need to make sure that you get cross-functional teams. You need to make sure that teams even know how to deliver value in an agile way. So whether we're talking about safe or scrum or Kanban in the end, if you still believe that you have an analyst creating a specification, handing it over to developers who create code, handing it over to some kind of operations department to build the code and install it on an environment, handing it over to test. That is not a problem of state, but that is where some organizations start. And those are the kind of things that will take a lot of effort and you even have to break through some political barriers and sometimes major resistance when trying to make those changes. And that is what is making the first PI very difficult to prepare for. Once that is set up, we can have a much simpler way of working. I'm not concerned with the features. They are usually there. We have detailed solution designs half a year before we start working on them. So we can say, we just take some of them into our first BI planning. It's not agile, but the features 
are just a few days of work. So good. So you have defended safe. So if we have developers that email code to each other and don't follow any kind of modern development practices, then safe's great because you've got 90 days before anybody finds out you haven't delivered anything of value and you can pretend that you're going to wait for another 90 days. For those organizations, safe is a great way to hold back the tide of exposing that our development practices aren't up to speed. I think you're being a bit unfair, Shane, because SAFE has absorbed all possible Agile practices under its umbrella, and therefore it does have DevOps in there, doesn't it, Michael? Oh, absolutely. And not just DevOps, but also behavior-driven development, test-driven development, design thinking, and all those kinds of things. And that brings us to another very important point. When we start with SAFE, we typically have this kind of very segregated process where the degrees of separation between a developer and a user tends to be six and above. I've seen organizations where literally there were 14 people in the communication chain doing the telephone game before a developer ever saw a requirement. And to move those organizations to a point where developers and users sit in the same meeting, it's a massive change. That would be good if that actually did happen in SAFE, but it doesn't. Customers really are not very important in SAFE. I think SAFE is basically a delivery mechanism. When I did the training, customer really wasn't mentioned at all. I think it's got a bit more priority now, but the way it's implemented is managers in the organization somewhere talk to customers and some of those talk to the product owner for the release train. And then they talk to a bunch of other people who talk to a bunch of other people who talk to a bunch of other people who talk to, a people who talk to a developer. So. If you were an organization that had 14 levels between a real customer and developer, you probably got 12 levels after you implement safe. So maybe it's better, but it's not good. It's not like four levels, even four levels would be better than what you get in safe. But safe did put the customer into the picture of essential safe at a very prominent place. And I use that as a discussion starter. And that is also one of the things where I say, this is one of the difficulties that organizations have when adopting safe. Okay. You want to give me a train roster and the staffing for each team. That's cool. I have this little dot called the customer here on the diagram. And I want the customer focus group of people able and willing to communicate directly with developers during the PI planning, during the sprints and give feedback during the sprint reviews, which the teams have at their level and during the system demos where we present an integrate increment. And if I don't have those people, we are not ready to launch. We talked to Al Shalloway about this, one of the original thought leaders of safe he taught safe to quite a few people and then after having some arguments with dean for not doing it the right way left the safe community and he says that safe starts off well in its first program increment the first pi which you said is difficult is the best and then it gets worse from there because what happens is in the first pi managers are willing to accept pushback from the team that they can't do everything and therefore management need to compromise. But once it gets to about the third increment, managers start 
saying to the team, just shut up, this is what you're doing. And they just ram features in. So in the program that I was coaching, which had a 100-person team and been doing SAFE for two years before I got there, everybody was unhappy. They were way behind schedule. They were only ever delivering half what was agreed in the program increment. And that was because their program manager was just jamming stuff in and dictating to everybody what they had to do. So basically... He and the general manager were treating SAFE as a series of three-month fixed-scope program plans, and they would tell people what to do, and they better bloody well do it or get fired. And people were miserable. When I got there, all the teams had given up on their retrospectives because when you had a retrospective, the program manager would say, why are you wasting time on that? You've got better things to do. And then if they raised issues out of their retrospectives, he would tear strips off them. So it wasn't a happy place and they weren't doing well. I tried to get them to go to Kanban, Michael. That seemed to help quite a bit. People's experiences are different. I do not disagree that a number of safe adoptions are horrible and they're making people's life worse. I've seen those and I've had to deal with those as well. And I've even joined fairly long-running release trains where people were getting desperate. Desperate that this is basically just the same as waterfall, but with the micromanagement of being controlled for a delivery and being on schedule every two weeks. But that is not the kind of experience of the release trains that I coach, and that's why it is so important. You cannot let anybody coach anything. You need to know what you're doing. You wouldn't go to your barber and get brain surgery. You need to go to a neurologist to get brain surgery. I would tell you some examples of trains I've been working with. Uh, one of them has been running for over two years. One of the developers said that he had never felt so liberated, so empowered, so in charge of his own work. His opinion was never valued as before, as in a safe environment, in the environment that we created in this release train. And another release train met their financial targets six months ahead of time for the fiscal year. And the product manager was like, okay, we have so much backlog, but we're delivering a return on invest of 10 to 1. And management is thrilled with the outcomes we're generating. We have backlogs, so what? Who cares? So this is a question of having the right people in the right position and giving them the coaching and support to succeed in their role. And that is where many organizations fail. If you've been working in a very big bureaucratic organization that takes five years to deliver something, like a government department or a big bank, then moving to a series of three-month rolling projects, which is what I consider safe is, is going to be a big improvement. But it's much less value than you would get with Agile. And I would say it's actually not Agile. It's something else. It doesn't fit with the Agile values. The Agile values are... We are continually improving the way we're working. We value individuals and interactions over processes and tools. And SAFE is the opposite of that. We went through with Al Shalloway and he said the only Agile value that SAFE complied with was working software over documentation. 
It's not responsive to change. It doesn't value change over planning. It's the opposite. It doesn't value individuals over processes. It's the opposite. And it doesn't value customer engagement over contracts because the PI increments become a form of contract. So it's something better than waterfall, but whatever it is, it's not agile. It doesn't fit with agile values, I don't think. Now, the first thing is that uh, a lot of this depends on how it is implemented and different people implement it differently. So it's not possible to make a brushing statement here. Aside from that, I would agree it is not necessarily agile. And this one also comes back to the question of why do we even want to be agile if we are working in a highly predictable, regulated environment, then we do have constraints which are not conductive towards the roots of the Agile Manifesto. What we want is to have a successful business operations. And in those environments, focusing on the lean aspects of SAFE is significantly more important than focusing on the Agile aspects of SAFE. Even though I do agree that treating people as people and valuing the people and their interactions is very important. There's one thing that I would like to say specifically about the interaction points, and that is as soon as you have multiple teams working on the same product, you need to find a way for people to interact across team boundaries. How do we make sure we're testing consistently? How do we make sure that we're not getting a zoo of infrastructure? How do we make sure our architecture is consistent? How do we make sure that we have good engineering practice in place? How do we make sure that we have uh, code conventions that work for everybody? All those kind of questions, they're very easy to discuss inside a team. When we discuss them outside a team, the discussion becomes significantly more complex. And not trying to take a jab at Scrum here, but Scrum descopes the question of how do we find those answers if we have more than one team? There is nothing in the Scrum Guide. In SAFE, we have a specific event, and that is the inspect and adapt, and the suggestion to implement communities of practice where people get together to discuss those questions and find solutions that work for everybody. You also mentioned Teams stopped doing retrospectives because they didn't have power to make changes. That is a terrible state to be in, and it should not be. But what we need is that teams have a forum. They can come up with their own ideas. They can find solutions that work for them, not just inside one team, but across team boundaries. SAFE gives us the means to address this. How successful we are with implementing those is a different question. So I agree scaling is hard. I agree that working with a team of five to nine people to focus on working together to deliver something is optimum. As soon as we add another team, another nine people, we start adding problems. People do say to me, well, if we don't use safe, how do we start up with a hundred teams of nine people? And my answer is don't. Just don't asking 900 people starting to work from the standing start with no practices and processes in place. You're asking for a hiding. So I agree. Scrum is a single team approach, right? The patterns are based around that. So I agree that scaling is hard. I still have a preference for patterns that have come out of Spotify. We had the talk about unthick, was it Murray? 
Jürgen Apello has a scaling framework called Unfix, which is based on team topologies and a bunch of other things. And I like that because it, it has some patterns around how do you encourage multiple teams to adopt the same practices, the same standards where it makes sense. So fundamentally, when we start to scale, we have to create some things that force us to change the way we work to deal with that scaling problem, that collaboration across multiple people or multiple teams. The problem I have with SAFE is it doesn't bring in that forcing factor. It lets us keep the organization the way it was with some rebranding of some people, the same behavior. And I get that when you do it, you bring in an agile way of working. And so you do help the organization change. The question you ask them is what's broken. What do we need to fix first rather than how do we implement safe? But that's because you're behaving like an agile coach and you're using the toolkit that you have and the expertise you have and the experience you have to work with the customer to make those changes. And. I still believe that safe stops that nine times out of 10. I'm far more comfortable with people adopting other scaling methodologies because it creates a better forcing function for that change. There is, in my opinion, no worse junk than the Spotify model, because that is lipstick on a pig. We do not even address the technological challenges, we do not address the communication challenges. We do not address anything. We just call departments to be chapters. Now we call the projects to be guilds and whatever. There's so much nonsense going on with the Spotify model that this one is really putting lipstick on a pig. It's not a defensive safe to say that another model has problems, Michael. And, and also, I, I think Murray's called out the people that have become McDonald's consulting for Spotify. And so when I talk about the Spotify approach, what I talk about is a matrix framework where we say, okay, we can't have 900 people working on the same thing. We know that doesn't work. We have to be able to eat the elephant. We have to break it up. And the idea that a team may end up being an internal team that provides a capability to a bunch of other teams as a service, which is one of the patterns that came out of that approach. To me, that has value in some context and some organizations I've seen it work. So I agree with you that again, like safe, we don't just pick up the Spotify model. We don't take the videos and go, let's just call everybody a squad and don't change anything else. But the matrix approach, which Spotify and Unfix have is one that from my point of view, I've seen work better than safe implementations. Safe is also a kind of matrixed organization that virtualizes the physical underlying line organization and brings the right people together in a permanent organization rather than a project organization. Just to talk about a specific problem. I was recently discussing with a program manager who said that it's insane. I know that this program is a core capability of an enterprise. And when you're building a core capability, it's not one off and then it's gone, but it's an ongoing effort that has a life cycle as well. And while the system is in use, it's going to be continued developing and so what this program manager was telling me that it's ridiculous that every month he has to struggle with the line managers of all those different lines and they're going over each person. Can I have this person again next month? No, I have a different project for this person. It's 
insane because those people are needed. They are working on something that could already be likened to a stable team, but it's not stable because the Damocles sword of it changing next month is always over the head of the program manager. And we're safe. We're saying, we know those people are working together, create a virtual organization and the line fully delegate those people into this release train for as long as they are required by the release train rather than optimizing around resource utilization. So there is definitely a scaling problem. I think we all agree on that. Scrum doesn't really scale. So we talked to Bassbode who said it does, but I'm not satisfied that Scrum scales very well. So there is a scaling problem and there's a lot of alternative ways of solving it. There's disciplined agile delivery from Scott Ambler, which is effectively a pattern library. That's the way he describes it. And I like a pattern library because it's all about tailoring to your situation. There is less, which is all about absolutely minimal governance and minimal management, but seems to be based on having everybody be an expert. There's holacracy, there's Spotify is about organizational structures. There's unfix and team topology is all about organizational structures. There's scrum at scale. There's a whole lot of things which are alternatives to safe. So safe isn't the only way to scale. I'm working with quite a large team at the moment. I am using probably the patterns from Jurgen's model and team topologies and some combination of large scale scrum. But I have too many people in the program leadership team for Bassvode to tolerate. But I think the solution has got to be patterns, not safe. I think safe is far too restrictive, Michael. Safe really emphasizes the experimentation and continuous improvement part on the safe adoption roadmap. The adoption roadmap seems to end when the train is launched. But there is this sentence that after a few years, the only thing that should remain from safe are the lean agile principles and everything else is open to inspect and adapt. So you need to have good adaptation at all levels of the organization and continuous improvement. So safe is not the end of the journey. It's the beginning of the journey that should institutionalize, inspect and adapt and continuous improvement. But I will say, this is the one part where organizations fail. Yeah. So SAFE doesn't institutionalize continuous improvement because it gives people this enormously detailed process map with a thousand pages and spreadsheets of agendas for hour by hour meetings. You don't see that when you just look at the map, but when you're certified and you go and look at it, there's a whole lot of super detailed processes behind the scenes and they're updated regularly. You have to constantly get recertified and pay them for more training. And so it's a centralized framework in that they are constantly defining what it is. Now I agree you don't have to follow it, Michael, and they do talk about lean a lot and they do encourage innovation, but organizations who adopt SAFE don't do those sorts of things. The type of organizations that like SAFE are hierarchical organizations that are heavily process oriented and before they had SAFE, they had a big PMO with a big 
program management process and they see SAFE and they go, oh, that's the agile version of that. That's what I want. I don't really want to change the way I work, but if I have to, I'm going to adopt SAFE because it seems a lot like the other things I'm familiar with. I fully agree with you. That is the starting point of the agile journey in most corporations. First thing, they do not know anything about agility. Second thing, they are afraid of big change. Third thing, they are looking for an anchor on which they can rely when they are going somewhere. And those are all valid concerns. We have senior managers here who are responsible for the jobs of tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of people. And they are concerned. They are afraid of making a big move that could devastate the jobs and lives of thousands of people. So they are looking for something and that is where the name of safe comes in. That is a safe move that they can do without haphazard dangers. And that is where many consultants or coaches in the agile space have failed before SAFE came around to address the concerns of those people to say, we have a plan of how you can start the journey. We have clear guidance of what are the first steps we, you need to take. We know where you are today and we know what steps you have to take in which order. Many Agile coaches say, I can't predict the Agile transformation. I can't tell you what you're going to do. I don't know what the final picture will be. And you go to a manager who's responsible for 100,000 people and you say, I don't know. I don't have a plan. I have no idea. We need to figure out how would they take that seriously? So Michael, I don't consider that to be an ethical approach. If you were a doctor, and you had somebody who had all sorts of health problems due to their obesity come to see you, the easiest thing to do would be to say, buy my diet supplements and take my diet pills because that way you'll be happy and I'll make a lot of money. And then we'll all be good. Yeah, you'll die of heart disease and you'll have all sorts of problems with your joints. But you know what? I'm meeting your need to be happy and also, my need to make a lot of money. So it's a win-win, really. So I hope SAFE was started with the idea of we have a way to fix a scaling problem and it's a viable alternative to the other approaches and we should do it. But I think the market has jumped on it and commercialized it and people who don't have the experience are now treating themselves as experts to go in and make money and not actually help organizations become better. I met Dean Leffingwell when he was developing SAFE. He came to a conference and he said, there's a scaling problem. We all agree there's a scaling problem. And I've used my experience developing RUP to develop a comprehensive solution to the scaling problem. Now, how do I make money out of this? That's what he said. He said in front of me and a hundred other people, how do I make money out of this? That's the thing. We need to make money out of this so that we can grow it and develop it and make a living out of this. It was absolutely core to save from the beginning of commercial stuff. That's why it was so successful because it was always very commercially oriented. When we are talking about especially lean startup, one of the first questions we ask about 
every new idea is. Is it a viable business model and how can we make it commercially successful? So now you have an approach in the agile space that combines things that we preach in product owner courses, do lean startup, do experimentation, ask the question, how can we earn money with this? And is it viable? Is there a market? And suddenly it's a problem. And so what if we are doing what we say that people should be doing? But does it solve the problem that people have? I don't think SAFE delivers on its promises. I've seen SAFE in action. We've spoken to Al Shalloway. We've spoken to Frederick Carlson. Frederick Carlson is in your area of the world, and he is the program manager for a one and a half thousand person SAFE program in a government department. And he says, it's not helping at all. So basically SAFE is not delivering on its promises, Michael. I'm going to jump on Michael's side of the fence for a very short amount of time. So if the hypothesis is organizations buy SAFE when they don't want the uncertainty of changing the way they work, because it is uncertain, we're changing everything we do. And actually we don't know what it's going to end up like. We have enough experience to say we typically will end up in a better place, but there've been failures. If we're really uncomfortable about that, and we don't want this agile stuff to come in at a ground roots, then buying safe is a perfect product because I get a map, I know what it is. So in that case, safe is a perfect product. Let me say that first thing from some of the clients that I worked with safe was a revolutionary change to the ways of working. And it was pretty tough stuff to swallow already. And the second thing is, like I already mentioned, if you're not institutionalizing a rigorous inspect and adapt and continuous improvement, you are doing it wrong. And how many organizations have adopted Scrum and see no benefit? How many developers do we see on the world using Scrum who say that this is the worst thing that ever happened in my career and I was forced to use Scrum? So it happens with other agile frameworks as well. And I would not say that safe is an exception here. If you have the wrong consultant, if you have a bad coach, if you have controlling management and there is no intent to change, then any agile approach will suffer the same consequences. So safe is no different from any other agile approach that the success depends on two key factors. First one is the competence of the coaches and consultants you're working with. And second is the actual willingness to make a difference. But I don't think safe actually works. I just don't think safe delivers the benefits that other agile approaches do and particularly the tailored agile approaches do i would say that the vast majority of my implementations of various agile patterns have been successful because i know what i'm doing i think you're right that people who don't know what they're doing and just implementing some sort of roadmap tend not to be very successful because they're not tailoring it for the situation that they're in if you were Dean Leffingwell and you were in charge of SAFE and you were allowed to make any changes that you could to SAFE, what would you do? If you would ask me what specifically I would change, I would agree with you is to reduce the rigor and specificity of 
many things that scaled agile frameworks make it look like they are prescriptive, but they are actually impediments rather than solutions. And I would weed out this entire thing because you can reduce a lot. Basically, you need to have the engineering practices in place. You need to have collaborating teams and you need to find a way to keep the teams focused on meeting common goals that they can all share that help the business. Everything else is just fluff and very situational. And this discrimination of what is really the essence and what is the fluff is not clear and safe. And that is what causes a lot of confusion. But why bother with safe at all? Why not just do something else instead? That's a good question. The starting point of almost every conversation that I have with managers and business leaders is we want to implement safe. Whether I agree with that or not is a different point, but it opens the door for a conversation. Give me a better door opener and we can talk about it. So is this your criteria for deciding what's appropriate is what has the most brand appeal with traditional managers? The question is, what do managers know and what is the point where you can pick them up? If you give Discipline Agile a good popularity, not in the sense that it is the thing to do, but that everybody knows what it is that they can talk about it, because you have to see a conversation starts with a mental model. And the mental model, if it includes safe, that is where we can start it. You can't start the conversation with something that the other person doesn't know about it. You can pick the conversation up and bring it into the conversation, but not the start of the conversation. If I was talking to say a telco executive or a bank executive or a government executive, I would start like you have with, why do you want to do this? What do you want to get out of it? And then I would recommend a tailored approach for their situation. I wouldn't talk about disciplined agile delivery or safe. I'd say don't do safe because everyone has a negative experience with it, but let us design a solution for your circumstances based on trials. So let's start with an area. We'll work with you to get something that works for your situation. And then we'll scale it out from there because everyone has different situations. So some organizations have to comply with particularly rigorous quality standards in particular industries. So you have to provide quite a lot of quality documentation. So you have to have a process that does that. Others, the key thing is speed to market. So the same solution will not work in every situation. I fully agree with you, except you always start with how do you start the conversation. So in the morning you decide to get up and go into the head office of Telstra and say, I want to talk with you about this approach. The question is, how do they come to you? And that's where their mental model is key. As soon as they start the conversation, we're good. It's just, how do they come to you? Look, I agree with you. We were just talking to Esther Derby and she made a very good point that too often we talk about solutions to problems that we see that a client has. And what we should really be doing is asking the client, what problem do they see that they have? And then helping them to solve it, not helping to solve the problems that we think they have. We should start by diagnosing the problem based on what the client is experiencing. But then like a doctor, I recommend that we come up with a solution which is tailored for their circumstances, not 
the out-of-the-box diet plan with 5,000 certifications, although that's a good way to make money if that's all you care about. Yeah, I would really like to pick up on your doctor's example. Very often you go to a doctor and sometimes you already have a solution in mind, like uh, I need pain medicine or so. But uh, no better doctor will immediately give you a prescription. They would all ask, what do you need it for? And see whether they can find out the root cause of why you're having the pain. But even if you say that uh, my stomach hurts, the doctor would not just say, I'll give you something for your stomach. They would try to find out whether it is really your stomach that hurts. So that is the natural process, but you already have a mental model that you know what a stomach is and that you want to treat something to get rid of the pain in the stomach. And this kind of a mental model is where do we pick up people from? Not which kind of treatment do we give to them, but what can we use to even start a conversation? All right. I think we better go to summary, Shaina. Would you like to go first? Yeah. So this one's a bit of a challenge. Okay. So you talked about understanding what problems the customer's trying to solve. You talked about how to address those underlying problems before we even start talking about You talked about the right people doing the right things and the right roles, all those good agile coaching stances in my view. And so for me, you're agile, but safe ain't. If I think about it more, you've given me one reason why safe has value. I hate it, but it is a true reason. And that's because safe opens doors. So I'll do all my work in the data and analytics space. And we had this whole buzz, big data bullshit go around a while ago. And there were a small number of customers or organizations in the world that had big data problems and the big data technologies solved those. But everybody else jumped on that bag wagon and opened up the doors made a lot of money, caused a lot of failures. We're seeing it now with a thing called data mesh. So while I agree safe opens doors, I don't actually think that's a good thing. So for me, safe is agile theater. The value for safe in my head is when an organization has decided to start off with safe, it's not an organization I should work with because culturally our values are not aligned. And then for me, that's where the value is. If you're an organization that's doing safe, I'm not aligned with the way you think, and therefore I can't help you. And so that's the value for safe for me. Uh, I probably will do now a better job of not being so negative about safe. I'm just going to ignore it more because for me, it's not something I subscribe to and I'm okay with that. But if you want to get a large organization to start talking about agile, then safe is the term that you use because they're not talking about dad. They talk about safe. Murray. Yeah. What executive doesn't want to be safe? I've spoken to quite a few safe certified consultants and trainers who say that they actually don't like safe, but it's the way they make a living and they're doing what they can with it. So I appreciate that there is an opportunity to go into safe implementations and say, let's introduce Kanban, let's introduce retrospectives. Let's empower the team. Cause I've done that myself. I made an income out of that for a while. It's just that I hated the safe environment. I'd rather not do that anymore. But there is an opportunity for somebody who understands agile to go into a safe implementation and say, let's try and do things better. Let's try and help you implement some of these real things that work. And that's what you do. 
and people should hire you to go in and fix their safe implementations, in my opinion. So I think there is actually a market in fixing safe and maybe you could have a safe fixing certification and a safe fixing business. I do also agree with you that safe strength is it gives executives in big corporations what they want. It gives them a feeling of safety. It gives them detailed and extensive processes. It gives them hierarchical organizational charts and they really like all that. They like the safety of it and the name and the rollout plan and the change management plan. It's really very well tailored to the mindset of executives in large corporations who don't understand agile. And Dean Leffingwell has been a genius at giving them what they want. Is it agile? No, I don't think it's agile by a long shot. Is it waterfall? No, it's not waterfall either. It's something else. It's something in between. I think it's three month rolling program plans with kind of a hodgepodge of everything agile mixed in there. But the problem I have with it is really that it's heavily process oriented. And I really feel that goes against the agile values. So I'm not happy with it. I was talking to somebody not that long ago who wanted to get me on as a coach. And I said, I'm not interested in working with safe. I think safe is bad. If you want me to come into your safe environment from a position that safe is bad and needs to be changed to something that works, I'm happy to help you. But I don't want to go in and say, yes, safe is wonderful. Just send me the checks. I can see why consulting companies do it. I don't think people should. That's my summary. Is there anything you'd like to respond to that, Michael? Yes. The first thing I would like to summarize is that I sometimes make this kind of joke. You don't want to have the disease for which safe is the cure. So that is always the first thing we should keep in mind. The second thing is that regardless of whether we like it or not, safe will be sold to corporations worldwide, and it will gain even more influence over time. And for evil to triumph, the only thing it takes is for a few good men to do nothing. And whether we can fix all environments, I would not say that. But should we leave the field of agile consulting in enterprises completely to the people who are really only in it for the money and who are not interested in helping only dumping a process and taking the big paycheck? I am opposed to this idea and I fully agree with Shane where you said that the values of organizations looking for safe are not aligned with agile values and that is why change is hard. But if we are not there to kick them off on this journey, nobody may. And if I might be one of the few people who say that I understand the difficulty and the challenges and the pain of working with inconsistent values to move towards a new set of values, then I am willing to go this journey. Yeah, it's an interesting one. What would you do as an agile coach if the organization decides to go safe and you have to decide whether you're going to go with it and try and make it work or leave? There is an argument for trying to make it work. I understand that. If I had a choice, I'd rather not. If you have something better, do the better thing. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. You have given us the best one-liner of all the podcasts we have done today. You've given us the one-liner that is so t-shirt worthy. That, that has made this whole hour gold for me in that one sentence. So thank you. 
All right, we better wrap it up. Michael, how can people who are experiencing the horrible pain of SAFE consult with you so that they can get some value out of it? Feel free to connect with me at LinkedIn or reach out to me directly via my company homepage, which is intelligence.com. There's a contact form and you can reach me out and we can set up something. And you also have a, a blog where you've written lots of interesting articles about Agile, not just about SAFE. Oh yeah, my blog, failfastmoveon.blogspot.com. I use the Twitter handle failfastmoveon as well, because uh, whatever we're doing is we're experimenting and we just need to do what we need to do in order to learn and then move on. So Fail Fast Move On has been recording my experiences in my personal Agile journey for the last eight or nine years already. And there's over 400 articles on there by now, a lot of which I would say reflected my perspective at a certain point in time, but some of them are pretty universal go-tos for challenges that I still see every day. Yeah. That's how I encountered you, Michael, and on LinkedIn. So thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. 